You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Okay, hello, good morning. We have some people dropping kids off, so I'm going to stretch out the introduction very slowly. Not really, don't worry. Uh, I will probably go for a long time, though, so buckle up. Uh, Okay. Just kidding about that, too, I hope. Uh, Good morning. My name is Houston. Um, I am the church planning resident here at the Vine. Wow, thank you. I got a great support network over here, guys. Um, So uh, today is the start of our Madison Multiply preaching series. Uh, We're going to spend time in Romans 12. And uh, the idea of this sermon series is that all the pastors of the Madison Multiply churches are going to come together, uh, preach at the different churches, and we're going to go through Romans 12 together. So first thing you'll probably notice is that I am not from a different church. I am from here. Um, (laughs) Yes, we were firing all cylinders this morning. Uh, Yes, I'm from here. Uh, I've been asked to uh, pinch hit, as it were, pinch preach. Um, and so, uh, I'm coming to you today to talk about Romans 12, 12. And so in this uh, sermon series from Madison Multiply, we're going through Romans 12, uh, we're going through the majority of the whole uh, chapter, um, but we're breaking it up into small sections, um, and each, each preacher is going to have a different thing to unpack for us. <clears throat> so, before we do that, um, I, the question, I guess, is... Why Romans 12? Why are we talking about Romans 12 in all of this? Uh, especially if you've been with the vine for a while. We've been talking about Matthew for a very long time. And now all of a sudden we've just put a big pause on Matthew and we're talking Romans. So uh, the reason why we're doing Romans 12, the reason why we're in this chapter is that this passage, this uh, chapter is, is one of the clearest lists of commands for community life amongst believers in the New Testament. So if we read all the way through Romans 12, we might uh, almost be overwhelmed by how much we're going to jump into, how much we're going to go through. We're going to be possibly overwhelmed with how much that Paul, the author of Romans, throws at the Roman church in terms of how to live, how to treat and consider each other, and how our lives are to look in Christian community. And so as we're approaching this chapter... Uh, as a Madison Multiply network, our goal in all these sermons is going to be to tease out these elements. You know, it's big and it's rich and it's a dense passage and there's a lot here. And so that's why we're breaking it up into very small, manageable, I hope, sections. And we're going to figure out what this letter to the Roman church means for us today, some 2,000 years later. And so today we're going to be talking about Romans 12, 12, and uh, go ahead and pull your Bibles out, get them in front of you. We're going to spend most of the day, most of the day, uh, we're going to spend most of the next, let's say, 20, 30 minutes uh, talking Romans 12, 12. And so I'm going to read it, and what I want you to do is, uh, is, is follow along. It's a long one, so buckle up. Um, and what I'm going to read is actually right off the screen here, from a different translation. This is different than we usually do, but it's going to make sense later, I promise. Romans 12, 12. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, 
devoted to prayer. So we got a short and sweet verse. There are three parts to the verse. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, and devoted to prayer. And these are three things we're going to talk about today. So we're going to see, by the end of our time together, is that we've dropped down in the middle of a train of thought. So we're going to track with that train of thought. We're going to see how we got where we're at. And we're going to see that these three things, rejoicing in hope, enduring in affliction or, or persevering in tribulation, and devoting to prayer are all related. And then third, we're going to see why these three things are such a big deal for Christian community. So let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, as we approach your word today, as we come under the teaching and authority of your scripture, we just pray that you would reveal to us uh, what you've got for us today. We pray that we would be transformed by this reading of your word. We pray that, uh, that in this time, the, the meditations of our hearts and the words of our mouths would be pleasing to you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, first things first, let's read the, let's read the verse again. Now don't blink, don't yawn, you're going to miss it. And rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. So the first thing you're going to see, especially from this translation I got on the screen here, is that this is just really not a sentence. Now if we go back to grammar rules uh, way back in elementary school, we'll remember that sentences need a few things to be complete sentences. They need a subject and a verb. So all the other fun stuff in the sentence is like set dressing for the real action, the subject and the verb. And so here we read, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. And when we notice that not only are we missing a subject, really we're missing a verb too. And so don't, don't drift away because I'm talking about grammar. Um, I know that not everybody gets pumped up talking about grammar like I do, uh, but that's because mostly you're normal people. And so this is significant because we have to remember that really we're in the middle of a letter. Think about the last time you wrote a letter. And as I was preparing this, I realized the year is 2021. Think about the last time you sent a text message. If you, if someone just pulled the very last text that you had sent and just read it aloud, no context, no prompting, we would probably wonder what kind of a weirdo you are. But in context, I'm sure that everything you said makes a lot of sense. In just the same way, these three ideas, rejoicing, hope, persevering, so on and so forth, makes, makes a lot of sense in the context of Romans 12. It makes a lot of sense in the context of this letter that we're dropping in the middle of. And so, if we want to see how this fits in, how this makes sense, we have to read the whole letter. And don't worry, we're not going to read the whole letter today. Uh, we're not even going to read all of chapter 12, but we are going to backtrack some, and we're going to follow this train of thought through Romans 12. So, think about this as the Romans 12 cliff notes. So our first stop, if you've got your Bibles out still, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. You're going to see on the screen... But it's going to be helpful if you can follow along, hold it in your hands. <clears throat> I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual 
worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here in this verse, we have, or in these two verses, we have a what and a why. First things first, the question is, who is he talking to? We see it right here at the beginning. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Some of our translations are going to have fun words like brethren. And so the, the idea that we see is that when we approach this passage, we see the first thing is that Paul is talking to believers specifically. And more specifically, he's talking to a group of believers in Rome. And a little background on the Romans. They were a bit of a messed up bunch. They had divisions, they had disagreements about how to handle the tough things going on and uh, just how to navigate community together. And, uh, you know, lucky for us, we don't deal with that anymore, right? And so Paul, he wrote to these believers, and, and the really interesting thing is that he'd never met these people. He knew of them. He heard stories about them. He loved them as a brother in Christ, but he'd never met them. And so he had just spent 11 chapters of the book showing them all the good things that Jesus had done for them. He wanted to cover his bases. He wanted to tell the whole story of what Jesus had done. And specifically, he was showing them that Jesus had saved them and brought them into a new family, that they were saved and brought together as one new family of God. And so it's after 11 chapters of Paul showing the Roman church all the ways that God has been good to them, and how he saved them and made them a new people, that we read this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so for Paul, all of these things that he'd spent the last 11 chapters unfolding and unpacking, reminding his hearers of all the ways that the Lord had been good to them, all the ways that they had gone astray, all the ways that God had pursued them still, and and ultimately all the ways that Jesus' death on the cross had both saved them and brought them together as a family, and that all of these things mean something. They mean that because of these powerful things that God has done for us, because of his rich mercies, we should live a certain way. He says that we should offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And this is too big a subject to tackle here. This is, uh, this is two or three sermons all on its own. But we've got a little shortcut. What does that mean, Paul? What does offer yourself as living sacrifices mean? He says, for the next section, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So the question is then, what does it mean to not be conformed, but to be transformed? Well, if we skip forward a little bit further to verse 5, we see that Paul says this. 12.5 says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. 
So then because of what Jesus has done through his life and death and resurrection, we are both saved and we become one body together. Which is weird Bible language for saying that we are like one family together, one unit. And, and we belong to each other. So you think about a body, in a sense the arm belongs to the leg, belongs to the head. We're all one body together. And so how do we live this out? How do we be one body together, the one body of Christ? And so the next paragraph, in our passage verse today, really fleshes that out. And these two sections that I just read, verses 1 and 2 and then 5, are really one flow of thought. And they're the basis for what we're talking about today. We're going to see that over the course of this whole sermon series, all of these things that the different preachers are going to come and encourage us with, all of these ways of doing life together and doing Christian life together, all flow out of this idea that because of the rich mercies that God has shown us, we are made one body together in Christ. And it's important that we see that for the Christian life, these, these good things that we've talked about, or we're going to talk about, the, the rejoicing in hope, the persevering in tribulation, the devoting to prayer, and, and all the other things in this section, they, they don't come in a vacuum. We don't just decide, hey, this seems like a nice thing to do. This seems like fun to be nice to each other. No, what, what Paul is getting at here is that we see all the ways that God has been merciful to us And we see all the ways that he's both saved us and brought us together. And then that moves us to treat each other with love. And this is so important for us to see, right? It's always a great reminder. We love because God first loved us. We treat each other lovingly because God did that to us. And we rejoice in hope be patient in tribulation, and devote ourselves to prayer because, not because we're good, but because God is good, because of what he's done for us. So now that we've got the why, let's talk about the what. So we're going to jump back into our verse today, and we're going to break down each of these three sections, each of these pieces of a command that Paul has given. First thing, you'll see up there, rejoicing in hope. And I, hope is a word that we say a lot, right? I was thinking earlier, um, Michael asked me before service started, he's like, hey, you feeling good? You're like, you ready for this? And I said, I hope so. Or, or how often do we say things like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, or I hope I don't fail my midterm. Or, I sure hope my bank account is empty while we're trying to buy gas or lunch. And we say hope, I mean, so often we mean something like, I'd really like that. Or, I desire it to be this way. Like, when I say, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, I'm really saying, it would be really great for me if there's no rain on the forecast for tomorrow. When Paul says hope here, when he says to be a people rejoicing in hope, he's not using this 
weak hope that we're familiar with. He's not saying, yeah, just really, I don't know, want for things to be good. No, for Paul in the, in the believer, hope is a strong word. It's an expectant word. It's a, it's a word crackling with electricity. In the biblical worldview, hope is not just a, a simple wish or a simple desire. Hope is something so much bigger. Hope is what we feel when we are sure that things will work out. And hope is not wanting or wishing. Hope is confidence. Hope is confidence in an outcome. And so I'm going to paint a scene for us. Just a, an imaginative story that we're going to walk through today. Imagine you're at a hospital. Your best friend has just been in a car accident. And they're asleep, and they're not waking up. And they've been asleep for like a day now. But you know that after the accident, they're rushed to the hospital, and they went into surgery... And they had the best surgeon in the state, the best in the country. And that this surgeon worked for hours to save your friend's life. And, and so after a few hours in the operating room, the surgeon comes out. And he comes straight to you. And he says, the surgery went well. Better than expected. Your friend will make a full recovery. I guarantee it. And so here you are, waiting at your friend's bedside, but this waiting is different, right? You have the guarantee of the best surgeon in the whole world. He said that everything went perfectly. Your friend will wake up. And so what does it feel like in the meantime? Yes, you're still worried. Yeah, on some level, you're still hurting for what happened, But man, aren't you in a better place than you were a few hours before, before the surgery? You have hope now. And and mixed in with the, the pain and the worry of what's happened, you experience a level of joy that almost doesn't make sense here. Because from an outsider's perspective, I mean, your friend is still in the bed, right? He's still asleep. He may even still look rough, banged up. But you know better. You know that the best surgeon in the world has fixed your friend, that he's had a life-saving operation, and that you have a guarantee that's so sure, so comforting, and so joyful. And and this this is exactly what we see in the Christian life, right? Remember, Paul says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. Paul has drawn our attention to what Jesus has done on the cross for us. And he said that it changes the way we live. And here he's reminded us of what Jesus has done. Dying on the cross in our place. Raising from the dead that we may have life in his. And friends, we have to remember that the cross, that the work that Jesus did, that the gospel itself the story of the good news of Jesus it has to be at the center of our whole lives. This event, some 2,000 years ago, still has implications for us today and in the future. We trust that Jesus' work on the cross was good and sufficient for us, especially 
And specifically, we trust that Jesus has forever saved us if we put our faith in him. And so that, in a sense, is hope, right? It's just like the story with a friend at the hospital. We're in this waiting time. The surgery's been done, but he's not awake yet. We're in this waiting time. And, And as believers, we're in a similar waiting time, right? Jesus is raised from the dead and ascended, but he's not come back yet. And so we're sitting here, essentially at the bedside, and we know what the surgeon said. Operation was a success. He's going to recover fully. And just the same that we know the gospel tells us that the work that Jesus has done is good and sufficient for us. That he has really healed us. That he has saved us. And that even though we're in this middle time, this time of waiting, we have hope that the day is coming when things will look fixed. Friends, this is our hope. Our hope is that what Jesus did in the past saves us in the present. And that in the future, we will experience the world remade. Everything will be made new. And yeah, right now, things look bad, don't they? But we know what's coming. And doesn't it make so much sense to rejoice in that hope? How good is it to know that Jesus is returning? Man, you can't turn on the news today without hearing another story of people suffering, of injustice in the world, of pandemics. We see our friends being hurt, our friends hurting people. But how good is it to know that Jesus has promised that he's coming again? And that when he comes again, everything is going to be made new. How can we not rejoice in this hope? Well, if you're like me, maybe that's all too easy. It's all too easy not to. It's so easy in our day-to-day lives to not think about this hope that we have I, uh, I work part-time at Starbucks, and let me tell you, eight hours into a shift, and I've made somewhere around 3,000 lattes, my hope in Jesus does not always come to mind when someone gets angry or is yelling. And, and this, is, this is the problem that we face. Hello. This is the problem that we face as people, right? We're forgetful. The Bible calls this forgetfulness. We know this thing. We know that we have hope in Jesus. But as life goes on, as you're eight hours into a shift at work, you start to forget this hope. And in the Old Testament, the Lord often called his people to remember. He calls them to remember him. Remember what he's done. Remember what that means for daily life. And one of the best examples of this we're going to find in Deuteronomy 6. And this is going to be familiar for some of us. We talked about this not long ago uh, when we were going through Matthew. But Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 is a great example of this. It's not going to be on the screen, but just uh, if you want to follow along, but just listen for the words remind, remember, things like that. So 6, 
4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, and you shall bind them as hands, bind them as signs on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So do you see how much emphasis the Lord put on remembering? God knows that his people are forgetful. God knows that we are forgetful people. And so what are they to do? They're to take the words that he's given them, specifically that the Lord is one, and to love the Lord our God with all our hearts in this passage, and they're to talk about them. Talk about them when they stand up, when they sit down, when they're hanging out with their friends, when they're eating dinner. Teach them to their kids diligently. Put it on your hands and your forehead, on your doorpost. Like, you get it. Like, cover yourself in these words. Surround yourself with this idea. The picture is that the Lord wants his people to orbit around these words that he's given them. Or else he knows that they'll forget. And so here today, when we read Paul's words in Romans 12, we see he's telling us to be rejoicing in hope. We have to take these steps to orbit around hope. We have to put the gospel story at the center of our lives. So we have to be a people that talks about the gospel. We need to talk about the gospel when we get up, when we lie down, when we walk among friends, when we have dinner. We have to teach it to our kids. Let's put reminders of the gospel on our door frames, on our hands, our foreheads, on our walls. Let's saturate our lives with this gospel story. Because it's so easy to forget, right? It's so easy in the day-to-day to forget this good news that Jesus has come, that he lived the perfect life, that he died in our place, and then he rose again so we can have life. This story, this is the core of our identity as believers. It's our source of hope. And so we have to keep reminding ourselves of that story. We have to keep coming back to what our source of hope is over and over and over. And along the way, we will experience the joy that comes from remembering this hope. Because again, in view of what Jesus has done for us, in view of this hope that we have, how can we not rejoice? And so one of the most important things about hope is that it leads to action. True hope changes how we live and how we act. And Paul, he's counting on that. And we're going to see in these next two points, in the persevering in tribulation and being devoted to prayer, is that this hope is going to move us to act in a certain way. So again, we remember that we're in this time, this waiting time. The time between Jesus' resurrection and his return. We know that things aren't perfect yet. We know that, again, there's still injustice in the world. There's still sickness. There's still hurting. There's still suffering, right? And, and really, we see that right here. Paul assumes the suffering will happen. No, I mean, notice right here, he says, 
persevering in tribulation. He doesn't say, now if you're unlucky enough to have bad things happen to you, or he doesn't say, you know, if you're a real jerk and people are mean to you. No, he says, persevering in tribulation. He knows that it's coming. And if you've been alive for any period of time, you know that it's coming too, right? We know that people get sick. We know that people hurt others. We know that we'll hurt others. Paul knows that this is all par for the course in the Christian life, in any human life, really. But he tells us that the mark of the Christian in this area is persevering. And in fact, this, uh, this word for persevering uh, could be translated a couple different ways. You know, depending on what translation you got in front of you, you could see something like persevering here or being patient, uh, holding on, remaining, something like that. But I really like, and a lot of translators like, the, the word enduring. And I, I like the word enduring here because for me it brings to mind two things. First, when I think of enduring, I think of something hard. Some of our translations say, be patient. And, and if someone is asking me to be patient, I feel like they're not asking a lot, right? At Starbucks, we thank people for being patient when they've had to wait more than three minutes for a latte. That's not a lot of suffering, right? That's a pretty normal, reasonable thing to happen. So patience and something like that is kind of just bearing through inconveniences, But no, when I think of endurance, I think of something hard. And man, that's life, right? Life is hard. Paul's not pulling punches here. He's acknowledging that life, this time between Jesus resurrecting and ascending and Jesus coming back to make things new, is hard. People are broken, and broken people break people. And people are hurt. And hurt people hurt people. <clears throat> and so when we experience things like friendships breaking off, or people saying awful things to us, and we're left here hurting, Paul doesn't say, oh, just be patient. No, he says, endure. This is hard, but endure. And the second thing that enduring applies to me is it implies an end. And remember back to the first part of the verse, to the rejoicing in hope. <clears throat> Paul wants us to see that we ought to endure the tribulations, which is just fancy Bible talk for suffering, afflictions, bad things happening to us, <clears throat> because we have hope that it will end one day. <clears throat> Excuse me, friends, we can't forget that this hope that we're reminding ourselves of, this hope is that in the gospel that we're orbiting around, this hope is that our suffering will end. If we really believe this, if we really believe that Jesus will come again and he's going to make all things new, he's going to fix everything, we have a powerful piece of information here, don't we? 
we have a powerful piece of information about our suffering. We know that it's temporary. And, and temporary can feel like a bad word when we're talking about these things. I mean, does it still suck? Yeah. Does it still hurt? Yes. But does that mean it's okay because it's temporary? Does that mean that just because it's temporary that the bad things happening don't matter anymore? No, absolutely not. What it does mean is just that we know it will end and that it's going to be made right. And so we don't, this doesn't change the fact that, that we and, and man, those around the world are suffering. It doesn't change that. It doesn't minimize that. It gives us hope that it's going to end and that Jesus is going to come one day and he's going to fix it. And so here, in the meantime, we endure. Because we are a people of hope, we are a people that endures. And because being a people that endures is hard, we are a people who pray. And so we're going we're to round a corner here. We're going to head towards the end, I promise. And I'm going to talk about prayer. If you spent any time in a church... You've heard talk about prayer. If you spend any time in any kind of religious context, prayer comes up. We talk about prayer, pray this, pray that. Prayer looks different, you know, all these kinds of things. But the question is, why is, is prayer so important? And importantly here, why are we talking about it today, in this verse? What does rejoicing in hope and enduring in suffering have to do with prayer? And of course, the answer is everything. It has everything to do with prayer. Think, think back to earlier. Think of the story of, of our friend in the hospital. Imagine a slightly different scenario. He goes into the surgery. The surgeon comes out, and he walks to you, and you turn around and, t- and don't talk to him. You just turn away. You don't want to hear anything he's got to say. Imagine he comes to tell you, hey, your friend's doing great. Surgery went well. He's stable. He's going to make a full recovery. But, but you don't give him the chance to say that. You don't talk to him at all. Man, how much hope do you have? You didn't hear the good news. You haven't talked to the surgeon who fixed your friend. Or imagine, you know, two hours later, you're sitting in the recovery room, and the surgeon comes around. He's doing rounds. He's checking on patients. You see the surgeon come in. You duck out the door. And at this point, you're freaking out. The surgeon keeps coming in to check on him. My friend's still unconscious. Is he going to be okay? What's happened here? He looks pretty rough still. He doesn't look much worse for wear than when he started. How are you going to endure this time of waiting if you won't talk to the surgeon that saved your friend's life? I mean, this sounds dramatic. This sounds extreme, right? It's because it is. But we do the same thing, don't we? When it comes to prayer. Man, how good is our hope in Jesus that he's going to come again if we don't talk with him? If we don't pray to him, ask him, Lord Jesus, King Jesus, please come soon. When, as James reminded us today, when we don't come to him and, and confess these ways that we've fallen short, 
How good is our hope when we don't have this relational connection with him? Or what about those seasons of suffering? When we face this, this pain of life, when people hurt us or those we love, how can we endure if we don't pray to the one who has suffered on our behalf? Our Lord Jesus, who knows suffering better than anybody. See, prayer is so important in the Christian life because it's, it's our lifeline. Prayer is an incredible gift that we've been given. And we have to recognize it as that. Prayer in the Christian life is like breathing. It's what sustains us. It's a source of sustaining life. And so, as we, as we move towards a time of application, it'd be really easy for me to just say something like, pray more. And I mean, that's good advice. We should pray more. I, I don't care who you are. You, we can all pray more, right? We're never getting enough of this stuff. But no, application this morning, I think is very easy. I mean, it's up there on the screen. Be rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, be devoted to prayer. That's the application. Paul has written it out for us. He's, explained, he's, he's written it, and he says, be a people who rejoice in hope. Be a people who endure suffering, and be a people who devote ourselves to prayer. So, instead of coming with a list of tasks for us to accomplish, instead, I want to paint a picture. I want us to see that these things that we've been talking about matter, and I want to paint what I think is a beautiful picture of these images being lived out, because I believe that we know the what. These are the three things. But what I want is for us to kind of get caught up in the beauty of the image of the why. And that seeing this beautiful way that these things can be lived out can be encouraging for us to push a little more into rejoicing and hope. And to push a little more into enduring. And to push a little more into prayer. And so I'm going to read for us from Acts 2. These are the very first days of the church. We saw the beginning of Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes down on the believers. And Peter preaches this bomb sermon. And people are coming to faith. They hear this good news, this hope that we orbit around. And they say, I want to be a part of this group. And I want to follow this Jesus. So we come to this passage, and, and you'll see on the screen, we're going to see just a little picture, a little slice of life of what it could be like following Jesus. In Acts 2, 42 through 47, say this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayer. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
I think this is a beautiful picture. It's a hopeful picture, right? It's a, people, it's a picture of a people who are rejoicing and are celebrating together. It's a picture of people who are banding together through tough times. It's a picture of people who have devoted themselves to spending time together, to eating meals together, to praying together, to reading the Bible together. This is not, this is not a, a picture of a stuffy group of religious people. This is a picture of a beautiful community of love and sacrifice. This is a picture of hope, endurance, and prayer. And so, again, we know what the call is to do. But family, let's pursue this. this is, let's rejoice in this. These are good things. Let's rejoice in the hope that we have. Let's push through and, and try to endure in suffering. And let's devote ourselves to prayer. And let's pray now. Father, we know that you are so good and you've been so good to us. And we know that, man, all these things we talked about today are, are good, but they're hard. And so we pray that as we read your word, as we see this, this glimpse of what life could be like, we pray that you would work in and among us in your spirit and bring about this growth in us. Lord, we know that without you, we can do nothing. We know that, uh, like Jesus said in John, that you are the vine and we're the branches. If we abide in you, you produce much fruit. And so, Lord, we trust that. We trust that if we keep just abiding in you, if we try to keep persevering in tribulation, if we try to keep rejoicing in hope, and that if we, like right now, devote ourselves to prayer, we trust that you're going to meet us there, We trust that you've already met us there. So Lord, we just pray for your help. We can't do this on our own, but we trust that you're going to show up to help us, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.